Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my brother, Dave Osler. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's good to um, be able to talk to my brother. Um, Dave and I offered a prayer, and we pray that a good spirit will be here as we talk about David's new book that he has written. And will you introduce, tell us the name of the book and the website you put together and just kind of start talking about your book, Dave? Well, thanks. Uh, The name of the book is um, Bridges, Ministering to Those Who Question. And uh, the purpose of the book is to help um, uh, members of the church understand why people um, might leave the church and what we can do as members of the church to be able to uh, be loving and understanding as people um, make decisions with regards to their faith. I put together also a website that um, has resources uh, in addition to kind of an overview and samples book. And it's called bridgesLDS.com. Tell um, our listeners just a little about you. Are you an active member of the church, believing member of the church? Where are you on commitment and belief in our church? I, um, I'm an active um, member of the church. Um, my wife and I have, uh, my wife and I have served um, uh, four missions together, two full-time missions and two church service missions. I served a mission. Um, you know, the church means a lot to us, um, enough that we would um, kind of do whatever is asked of us uh, in order to be able to help people understand uh, um, the message of the restored gospel. That's um and um just being Dave's brother, I've seen Dave and his wife Rochelle really give decades of their life to the to the cause to helping people come unto Christ through our restored church. And this book is a book I've read. Um, I think Dave, this is being recorded in August, has been on about eight or ten podcasts. Um, several articles have been written, and and I think this is a book. In my experience as a church leader and as a YSA bishop, I didn't have a lot of tools to help members of my congregation know how to navigate complex issues regarding their faith. And in some ways, I was looking for better tools. I recognized that read, pray, and scripture study and temple attendance were very helpful, but I knew I just intuitively needed better tools as they were being exposed to more complicated issues in our faith and. To me, this is a ministering book um, to help all of us. So as you're listening to this podcast, if you're a member, if you're a parent, if you're a local leader, or or someone in a faith journey, um, we just pray that some of the things that Dave shares will be helpful, that buying the book will be helpful, that more local leaders read this book so they can fully minister to their members. Um, Just kind of talking about why you wrote the book, Dave. So my wife and I, after we served um, two full-time missions, were called by our stake presidency to work in our stake to help um, specifically with our singles. And in our stake, um, we, we live in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. Um, in, in our stake, we had about 1,000 singles in our stake. And uh, because we have a, a, a single adult stake in our area, most of the active young single adults and even mid-singles would not be in our stake. They, they would be active in another stake. So most of our singles were less active, didn't attend. That's the, the term we use on it. We had about 800 non-attending 
um, singles. And um, our calling um, after a while became trying to understand why these 800 people don't attend. Do they not believe? Are there barriers in some ways of culture or um, background that make it difficult for them to attend? And so what we decided to do, and, and Richard, I, I distinctly remember when we got this calling, we kind of asked, I remember talking to you about it. And one of the things you said is, well, we'll go ask them why they don't come to church. And so um, using some of the principles that you had done, uh, with your YSA calling, we decided we would ask them. So we we sent out a letter to the non-attenders. We said, um, we're the Oslers, we're church service missionaries, and um, we want to understand why you don't attend. And um, we're not going to be in your face trying to make you come back to church. We really just want to understand. And we gave them a whole range of ways in which they could tell us why they didn't come to church. Um, and, and we got some responses. It, you know, many did not respond. Um, and even a few said, stop contacting me. I'm tired of getting solicitations from the church. But some that responded to us were very thoughtful. We went to lunch with some. Some wrote us emails. Some responded to a survey. We had a focus group, and some came to that. I got some texts from people that kind of told me, um, you know, what was important to them. And what we found, and it wasn't surprising to us, is that um, faith today is just different and more complex sometimes than we have thought it has been. And that the narrative that sometimes we have in the church, I hear it um, talked about it at, at times, that people might leave because they're offended or because they're lazy or they, they want to commit sin, um, that that wasn't true with the people that responded to us that they had other issues that made it difficult for them to either believe or to participate in the church. So from that, um, I decided uh, to do the best research I could into understanding what is written about it, what data exists about disaffiliation, about people not attending and the like. And so I went to um, social scientists. I went to um, authors that have published on it. I, I read blogs. I read first-person accounts. I read just about everything that I could um, uh, around it. And I concluded that uh, there was a lot of misunderstanding uh, and um, that there, there, there needed to be materials um, to help, whether you're a bishop or a mom or, you know, just someone who ministers to a friend, that um, if we had more understanding uh, around that, we might not stop someone from disaffiliating, but they could have less pain and less suffering and feel more connected. And for those that are struggling on whether to stay or not, we could help them feel like there was a home for them, even if they didn't believe everything or even if they had concerns. Um, or in fact, if we understood the issues, there's some concerns we could take away and make them not so important or go away entirely so that someone didn't feel like they had to leave. So from that work, um, uh, I, I realized that a discussion about disaffiliation, about faith reconstruction, about faith crisis, whatever term you want to apply to it, wasn't a simple 10-minute explanation to a church leader or a parent, but that it's complex. And the only way in which I knew how to 
relay that was to formulate um, uh, a structured um, yet moving um, explanation of um, uh, of this topic. And so it became a book. Tell our listeners where they can get your book. So the book is um, available um, from Greg Coford Books. That's the publisher. It's also sold at Deseret Book, and it's also available through Amazon. So any of those three outlets are places where it can be found. And um, talk about the findings, because um, the background is very helpful. And just for our listeners, you know, Dave is my brother, so I'll kind of interject personal insights. Um, he is very analytical as one of his gifts and is, I think has had a career in just research and using data to make really good decisions. So I think this kind of comes naturally to my brother is to want to, before prescribing and solving things, wants to really understand the data. And I think that's one of the great strengths of this book is the efforts that Dave has gone um, along with others that may have helped him to really understand the data. And I've, if I'm a sitting in an elders quorum or a ward council, I would love to know the data for why people are not attending. I can certainly sit there and make assumptions, um, but it's very helpful to have factual data that would then give me more insights into how to minister to people. And also, I think it would be helpful for me, for the active members of my ward, to know in the back of my mind the soft spots, potentially, that I could address um, or be aware of as a ward leader, as a parent, um, to maybe prevent a faith crisis or to, or to better, you know, maybe prevent is the right word, prevent a faith crisis by um, talking about some of the things that potentially could come up. So um, I don't know if you had a comment on that at all, David, or just talk about some of the findings. So... Um... Disaffiliation from religion is a general phenomenon in in the Western world and in the United States. Um, it's not something that just affects um, uh, us as Latter-day Saints. It affects Catholics and those of other Christian faiths or even other non-Christian uh, traditions. Um, and, and that's true for a lot of reasons. And, and those reasons affect us too. Uh, there's some uniquely... Um, uh, Latter-day Saint issues that do affect Latter-day Saints in terms of, uh, uh, of, of disaffiliation. What we found, or what I found, uh, first I started with uh, data from uh, Pew Research, and I found that um, uh, the largest growing or the largest growing um, spiritual movement in the United States is those people that are spiritual but not religious. Uh, they refer to them as the nuns, uh, not like Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, no religion. Yet they're spiritual, and they find that they pray, and they believe in God, um, but they don't want to affiliate with a religion. And uh, it's uh, more common amongst millennial and Gen Zers than it is in my generation. Uh, but for a whole range of reasons, the connection to an institutional religion is, is weaker in our culture than it's ever been in Western culture uh, throughout you know, modern history. Um, some of those social scientists have studied um, specific trends within the Latter-day Saint faith. And there's a researcher named Darren Shurkat. He's a sociologist from the University of Illinois. 
And he found that religious disaffiliation among Latter-day Saints is higher than any of the other major faiths. So more than Catholics, more than Jews, more than um, Methodists. Um, but it is, um, you know, you know, very, um, it, it is higher than any of those other religions, not by a lot, um, um, but nonetheless, it's there. Now, um, I've heard that our retention rates are higher. The the percent of people that identifies the religion that are percent that are attending regularly is higher than most religions. So just explain yeah, um, so if that's his, true what I've heard and how that fits into what you're sharing with us. So Shirkat's methodology um, basically is a survey technique, and they, they call people, and using statistical tools, they make sure that they're representative in terms of the population. And the dialogue goes something like this. Um, hi, I'm calling from a research uh, group. I'm going to ask you some questions about religion. What religion um, did you affiliate with when you were 16? And they might say, I had no religion or I'm Catholic or whatever. How old are you and um, what religion do you affiliate with today? Um, and that's how they measure disaffiliation. So they take what you were at age 16 and then what you are today. And uh, they measure those that move to another religion, um, those that move out of religion entirely, uh, and those that stay within their religion. So they measure what they call apostasy, which is leaving your childhood religion. They measure loyalty, which is retention within the religion. And then they uh, measure um, switching, which is I switch from one religion to another. So the, the data, um, and they break it out by birth year. Uh, the data shows that in our younger populations, uh, that disaffiliation is quite high. In our church, you're saying in the younger populations, it's even higher than other faiths. Yes. And um, the data is sparse um, in that population. Um, but the research that Jana Reese did took that raw data and identified that we're probably losing about half of our millennials. And give our, our listeners the age range for millennials, if you can do so that. So millennials are basically the 18 years from about 1980. Uh, to almost 2000. Uh, that would be their birth year. It's, it's all of my children are millennials. <laughs> so, um, and uh, uh, so that, that's, that's the age range. And then the next generation is referred to as Gen Z. And there's no data that I am aware of on retention of Gen Z. They're, they're too young. Um, but there's no reason to believe that that the societal trends that are creating religious disaffiliation would be different in that population. Um, yeah, I want you to continue to talk about findings. I know, and my wife and I, when we served in our YSA ward, we had 300 on the rolls, and I felt like 100 were not attending and really didn't want to attend. Uh, I thought 100 were not attending, and their home was still the church. Their spiritual home was still the church. And I, th I, I thought that most of those could attend if they could overcome different obstacles. They wanted to attend, and then 100 were attending. So, you know, out of the 300 on our rolls, 100 were attending. Yeah. But it was interesting for me, the 200 were, that were not attending were generally in very two different groups. So um, keep sharing findings. Um, the order of this podcast, just as an overview, we want to go through Dave's findings. Um, they're a big part of this book. We want to also go through then implications. So what do we do? And 
and what do we do differently? And that's really an important part of this podcast that we'll get to because if if you're hearing these findings and implications, that's one of the things that I think is unique about David's book. And I call it the pastoral approach or the ministering approach. What do you do then with this data? And what, you know, if you're a home teacher, I guess we don't use that anymore, a minister or whatever. So keep sharing findings with us, Dave. So um, I went beyond what is out there in terms of uh, sociologists um, and statisticians. There are many measuring broad religious trends. And there's really these three sources. There's Pew, there's Shercat, and there's Reese. Reese, her research is exclusively focused in on Latter-day Saints. So those are the three sources that have the most robust statistically valid data. Um, Part of what I did is I wanted to focus in on a specific group of people that disaffiliate. And this group I refer to as members who've had a faith crisis. And I define specifically what a faith crisis is in the book. And I'll just read that if I might, because... Um, We use that term a lot, but it means a lot of different things to different people. So what I say is a faith crisis is used to describe the state of dissonance and distress that some may experience regarding the belief in the church and its teachings due to some sort of traumatic church event, including discovering new information about the church, which conflicts with their own understanding, disagreeing with a church policy or doctrine, or having a difficult encounter with a church leader. So this isn't a 14-year-old that because of lack of family support stops attending church. This is a person that um, typically has been very believing that says, I I no longer can know what I even believe. And I may, because of that um, crisis of of understanding my beliefs, uh, I, I don't know whether I can stay. And so what I did is I created um, what is called a snowball survey. It's, it's not statistically representative, but I found 320 people uh, that responded to a specific survey I did. I call it the Faith Crisis Member Survey that responded to um, questions about their belief before their faith crisis and how they believe now in their faith crisis. So um, I asked them, Um, Were you, before you had a faith crisis, did you believe wholeheartedly in the church? And high rates of belief before their faith crisis. I asked them if they were studying their scriptures. I asked if they were attending the temple and had temple recommends. And the data is in the book, and I won't review it on the podcast, but these were people serving in callings, meaningful callings, some that would be leadership callings. These were people that were attending the temple and doing the things that we— Uh, no build spirituality in the church, but something happened to them that caused them to completely question their faith. Um, And so this group um, is a unique group. Um, It's a small section of why people disaffiliate, um, but it's an important group because um, they, they have been stalwart believing members of the church. I created another survey um, that was of local leaders And I had 514 people that responded to this survey. Again, it's not statistically representative, but it has large enough numbers that it's meaningful and and can be considered. And I asked them many of the same questions. They were largely in the United States, but geographically dispersed, Utah, Wasatch Front, 
Arizona, you know, New England, all over, um, and ask them many of the same questions. One of the questions that I ask these leaders is, what do you think triggers a faith crisis? What are the meaningful contributors to a faith crisis? And I will share some of this data. Well, the first question I asked is, is it an important issue to address? So I asked their level of agreement to, is it important to address a faith crisis in your ward? And um, 98% of these local leaders said it was either very important or important. I asked them, is it important to address in your family? And 76% said it was very important. And another 21% said it was important. So there was high understanding from these local leaders that addressing issues associated with faith crisis were important. I asked these same leaders whether they had personal experience with their family and friends and in their ward with regards to the faith crisis. I asked them uh, whether they had an adult child that had had a faith crisis. And of those that did have an adult child, 64% said that they had. So that's a lot. That's a lot of families. And 97% said that they had either an immediate family member, like a brother, sister, parent, child, or a close family or a close friend that had had a faith crisis. So it's a topic that affects us all. Um, it, it, it affects probably every um, you know family one way or another in the church. Um, so... Um, you know, that's the kind of finding and that's the kind of information that I came to. I also asked these local leaders whether... And these local leaders aren't in a faith crisis. They're just no. regular local leaders. So the, the faith crisis group is definitely different from the local leader group. Yeah. And I asked these local leaders about their own faith, whether they believe wholeheartedly as a, word, as a term that I use, whether they attend church, uh, whether they've had doubts. Some of them have had doubts. I mean... Maybe most members have had doubts, but they're, they're, they're faithful members of the church. I asked their level of whether they hold temple recommends and, and those kinds of data. And, you know, this is a solid group of, of people. I asked them whether they're receiving training on how to address faith crisis. It's happening in their families. It's happening in the ward. They see it's important. Um, they're not getting uh, what they perceive as training from their stake and ward leaders. I asked them whether their ward feels like they can address effectively faith crisis. And um, so the specific question is, my ward leaders know how to effectively minister to individuals in a faith crisis. Of these leaders, only one and a half percent strongly agreed with that, that their ward felt that. And another 25% agreed, which means almost 75% of these local leaders felt that their ward didn't know how to address that. That's pretty interesting. I mean, especially when you've got 97% that can say, I know somebody, family or ward member that's in this category. Now, if that had been 3% yeah. and a very few need how to address it, there's not a need. <laughs> it's like um, plowing water in the in Death Valley and channeling it around. There's no waters. There's yeah. no need, but there's a huge need. Yeah. You know, part of what I did here was not only do data, you know, the book isn't about the data. The book is more about the stories that I put together with the data. For example, I interviewed a a bishop, um, I think he um, is in Texas, and um, he had some experience with faith crisis, and so I wanted to understand what he had done. And 
And he told me about a story his first year as bishop. He's um, doing tithing settlement. A wonderful couple is in his office. They have been faithful and carried some of the heavy leadership roles. And he was just gracious in terms of his thanks to them. And they kind of looked at each other kind of awkwardly and said, well, Bishop, we're here to tell you we're leaving the church. Wow. And, you know, he had no clue. And it was clear that this couple had thought about it deeply. This wasn't some whim. They were mature in their faith and their understanding. Um, and and they had spent months and months um, thinking about what they should do as they had entered a faith crisis. And the bishop first encountered them when on this faith crisis topic at the time where they had chosen to disaffiliate. And, and that's not a completely uncommon story. I don't think that happens frequently, but it happens enough. And it happens in a way where there's not always understanding from the person who sits across the desk or the neighbor that's walking, you know, together with that person every day, um, you know, and feels like they're friends. And, and, they, and they find out that, you know, they've had deep troubling issues with, with faith for months or perhaps even years. It's something that has even happened in marriages. One of the things I like about the book is you do bring a lot of stories to life. And so you've got data, but then you talk just like the situation you just shared. And it's very helpful for me to hear the stories. And I encourage our listeners to buy the book because you hear the stories. And then if you're a leader, you can put yourself in those situations, go, what would I do? And then the book has insights in what you do. Um, talk more about findings or, or implications. So one of the questions I asked of leaders is, what do you think triggers a faith crisis? And um, so I, I presented them a range of options. And um, um, the, the, the options that are typically thought of um, with regards to belief, I'm trying to find the data here in the book so that I can read it. Uh, I asked them... Um, whether they think that being offended is a major contributor to um, their faith crisis. And leaders overwhelmingly agree with that. I think it's 94% of local leaders that responded felt that that either strongly or uh, agreed that that was a contributor. Um, local leaders felt um, that conflict with other members was a major driver. Uh, again, equivalent numbers about... Um, 94% felt that that was um, a major contributor. And then not wanting to live the commandments, leaders felt uh, 84% that that was a major contributor. I asked that same question of these members in a faith crisis, what the contributors were. Guess what? They're completely different. So 1% felt that being offended strongly contributed to a faith crisis. Um, 4% said conflict with other members did. 0% said not wanting to live the commandments. And again, this is not a representative sample. There's people that don't want to live the commandments that leave. But these people that were in a faith crisis were completely misunderstood as to the contributing issues that triggered their faith crisis. And, you know, Richard, if, if we don't understand people, we don't know how to minister to them. You know, ministering um, isn't about a program of um, visits. Um, it's, it's a broader pastoral term that means that we know people and know what they're feeling, know what their concerns are, and then with them, 
we help them and comfort them and mourn with them. And it, it's a holy term. We, we haven't used it a lot in the church until the home teaching and visiting teaching program was separated. You know, it's kind of a Protestant term, and, and maybe we haven't felt, you know, that hasn't entered our vocabulary. But when we think about it at its deepest dimensions, it means a, a highly pastoral approach um, to understanding people and to being with them and understanding how to help them. And um, that's most of what the book explores, is what are their concerns? Not how to fix them and bring them back into the church, but how to understand them in such a way that we, we can love them. Um, and um, we can know that, uh, or they can know that we, we do understand what they're going through. I probably interviewed 50 people in a faith crisis. I also created a focus group with 85 uh, people in a faith crisis, and I asked them lots of questions on this. And one of the findings that was really surprising to me is how painful a faith crisis is for a person who enters one. Um, they're isolated. They're alone. They have no idea what they should believe anymore. Their whole identity has been wrapped up in the church, and now they're unsure whether that identity is false. Um, they often feel completely uncomfortable disclosing their level of belief to anyone around them. One of the stories I tell in the book is the story about Mike, and you know, Mike is a returned missionary and married in the temple, has four children, and um, had a faith crisis, and for a year. He lived in kind of this darkness um, where he didn't know what to believe, and he never told his wife. Wow. He's completely alone. Can't tell his co-workers, can't tell his family members, can't tell his bishop, and he's all alone trying to figure out what he really believes. And when I think about the word minister, what I think that means is to be able to comprehend what Mike is feeling. And not tell him he's wrong for feeling that, but for him to feel like he's can go someplace and be understood, that he can go someplace and that someone will accept that his feelings are real. Um, and, and I heard that story again and again. And I remember after I talked with Mike, um, he, at this point he had talked to his wife and the like, but, but he, he thanked me really quite profusely that I took the time to listen without trying to fix him, trying to intervene, but trying to just understand what his experience is. And, and I record some of his responses to that. Uh, at the end of the book, he, he just thanks me and says how healing it was for him to be heard. Um, and so the book kind of focuses in on what can we do as people to be more understanding, to, to comprehend um, what it means to be kind of unsure about our belief. How do we build a relationship? So um, um, I hope that comes through. I hope it, it, that people don't stop with data. It's not filled with data. The data is to help us understand that there's a disconnect. The stories help us understand the personal dimensions of what it means to to be uncertain about your beliefs. 
pretty touching story about Mike. I think that's the name you used. And I'm thinking Mike, you know, can probably find community in people that have left the church, um, online community or people to talk to. But I think Mike, you know, needs to be able to find faithful people um, to t be able to talk about how he feels. And I love what you're talking about. Just him talking to you was so healing for him. And to honor how he feels, to me, it seems okay that we just honor how people feel. Um, it seems like a ba basic pastoral principle that's pretty powerful. And so one of the questions I think you'll get to is, how do you create a culture in a family or a ward where the mics or whoever, you know, these people are feel comfortable? If I'm a bishop, what do I do um, to create a culture so that people like Mike will talk to me and also that I'll have skills that will be helpful to Mike. So eventually you want to get to that. Well, I mean, I think that's where we all want to be. And, um, you know, we, I'll just briefly touch on some of the issues that do trigger a faith crisis. I, I, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. And the book's pretty frank about them because they're real issues to some people. There's some troubling issues of church history that we haven't always talked about things I didn't learn in seminary that now because of more transparent history, um, you know, come to light. And if they come to a light uh, at a particular moment, um, they can really be troubling to people. The church's position with regards to LGBTQ issues um, can be really difficult for people. Uh, I, I understand that better having written the book and listened to people who experience some of those challenges um, than I did before. I don't have personal experience with that. As I listen to them, I can see how um, those are difficult issues to navigate. And I respect it when people um, uh, make decisions um, based on those issues, even when they choose to disaffiliate. Um, there's issues of gender. Um, both men and um, most of these are women um, feel um, that women's roles um, are not equal in the church, and that's difficult for them. Uh, they feel that they can't participate um, in a meaningful way and contribute to uh, the community in the way in which they would like. Um, there's issues of a judgment and culture that are complicated in the church where they feel like they are judged for living a life that is slightly different than um, kind of the average middle accepted way of life. If they're a professional woman, if there's a couple that is chooses to be childless or don't doesn't choose to be childless, if there's a divorce, if there's a non-member spouse, if there's um, mental illness, if there's um, you know pick the issue, they're a Democrat, they're low economics, um, uh, you know they make specific decisions in their lives and and they feel like. Um, uh, it's impossible for them to participate in the community because the community judges them not to be um, acceptable in the community. So there's kind of a high, wide range of issues. Some of them are issues of mental health. It's just difficult for them to participate because um, they, they can't because of their emotional and mental makeup. Any stories you want to share of women that helped you better understand why sometimes women don't feel fully valued because we're two men here yeah, and we may sometimes think all is well and um, not fully, I call these blind spots or soft spots. And 
if men just sort of talk about these issues about gender, we may miss listening to women and fully understanding um, sometimes where we don't see this. Yeah, let me, um, there's a, there is a, a comment that came um, from my um, surveys. So I, I allowed people to to write in comments. And some of the comments were really poignant and meaningful, and I include some in the book. And this is, this is um, one. Our experience is much like our mother's. We are told we are equal and powerful and relevant, except that we aren't. We hold no power, no real decision-making. We are presided over in every aspect of the gospel. It's suffocating and disempowering. Now, um, not all women feel that way. When you get into data by Jana Reese, it's, it's clear that um, a large percentage of, of active Latter-day Saints, women feel very comfortable with the gender roles that are there. Um, but there's also a large group that doesn't. Um, I recall another woman, um, and I, I don't think I have her story in here, that she said that at work, um, she is a CEO. She is single, and she's respected and um, uh, listened to. And when she goes to church, she has none of those same sorts of privileges. Um, uh, number one, she's single. Number two, she's a woman professional. And number three, she's a woman and so she's not asked to weigh in on important issues in the ward. She uh, has a very limited scope of callings that are available to her. And when she serves in those callings, often she is not asked to function as a, a, an equal participant to men that have kind of similar but gendered roles in a little different way. It kind of came to light, you know, it. Um, there's other examples I could use here. I, I recall going to church in, in Italy, and um, it was a ward conference, and I don't speak Italian. So all I can do is see and try and sing the hymns because I don't understand what's going on. And it's a ward conference, and uh, this stake apparently has most of their stake leaders uh, in attendance. Uh, but the stand was filled only with men. And when you separate out the Aaronic priesthood, I think there were 17 men that were sitting on the stand and, and one woman. And if, if I'm a professional Italian woman um, walking into church for the first time and I look up there and I say, um, you know, this is a place that doesn't give equal voice to women and I turn around and leave. And so those are the kinds of things that many women feel. Um, there's other examples. There's a story I use of a general uh, as a stake auxiliary president in a ward in a state council where um, her input is really diminished um, and and dismissed and how she responded to that and how difficult it was for her to respond to asserting the role of her calling in that meeting simply because um, she was a woman and just wasn't given the kind of voice um, that was equivalent to her calling simply because sometimes we diminish that voice. So it's something that is felt by a lot of women. Many women are able to navigate that. Some choose to, um, some can't, some don't. Um, so. Those are good stories. Staying on that topic, let's go to just, just talk to what we do differently. Um, so the book explores kind of three— Especially for women— so um, 
The book um, explores uh, three major topics around faith. It explores whether um, members can feel that they trust their church leaders to help them in their spiritual journey, to be honest with them about, um, uh, about the church and what it's trying to accomplish, as, as well as to be ministerial to them as they seek their spiritual journey. The second area is something I call belonging, feeling that I can be who I am with the church community as I seek to come unto Christ. And the third area is meaning. And what I mean by that is that the church addresses the most important spiritual issues for me. And in all three of these areas, there's issues for women. Um, The area that sometimes is the biggest is the issue of belonging and feeling like I can be authentic. There's good research uh, by, by Reese that shows that women often feel judged at church. Um, we have a culture of, um, of standards. We have a culture of kind of expectations. And um, that often translates into a culture of, of judgment. Um, and that is a major contributor to uh, faith crisis and feeling like you can remain and belong. So let me just share some of the data here. So for someone in a faith crisis, I ask them their level of agreement to the, to the statement, I feel like I belong in my ward. And um, 2% said they strongly agreed. 32% said they agreed, which meant 67% disagreed. That, that's pretty large. It's hard to um, feel like you can continue to participate at church when deep down under you don't feel like you belong in your ward. So you kind of ask, well, what, what does that feel like? What, what are the stories? And so I asked this focus group, um, what does belonging mean to you? And, and, and how would you describe this state of disbelonging? disbelonging. Uh, One person said, I disagree with some church beliefs and policies. I feel if I speak up, I would be attacked and disregarded. Another said, there is no space for difficult interpretations of theology. There is no space for real church history. There is no space for my questions. There is no space for an empowered, knowledgeable woman's voice. A man will just override her thoughts. Being open in the Latter-day Saint faith doesn't make me feel closer to God. It makes me feel separated. People would be scared of me if I expressed my real opinions. And so that that feeling like you can't be who you are, you know, uh, the, the place that we should be most willing to disclose who we really are should be in our faith community. And yet there's something about us that makes it really hard to do that. I talked with one man who once expressed that um, uh, in a gospel doctrine class that, that the story of Job was an allegory. I, you know, that may be the case. Uh, I feel that, I feel it doesn't really matter. Um, he was labeled as an apostate. Wow. And, and they now, he still attends. And they refer to him in joking as the apostate. Well, when we start putting those kinds of labels on people, 
You know, if you look it up in the dictionary, does that feel like you belong in the ward when your nickname is apostate or anti-Mormon or one of the tares or um, someone deceived or, you know, something like that just because you have a different opinion on the way in which to find spiritual meaning in your life? Um, So that culture um, can make it really difficult. And I think uh, for people who don't fit into the norm, that issue of non-belonging, you know, really is there. It's um, outside of faith crisis. It can be the the missionary that comes home early. It can be the lesbian. It can be the divorcee. It can be someone with mental health issues. And when you go to church and you feel like people don't get you, don't know who you are. Um, then it's hard to remain. So, you know, that's a tender area because um, almost all of us want this connection. And because spirituality is so important to us, and our theology tells us that we are all brothers and sisters, children of heavenly parents, to feel like you don't belong in that family is pretty painful. You know this. You talk to people that that have some of these these same feelings. Yeah, it's just tender for me as you bring voice to people that we need that don't feel like they belong, and then we lose really good people. And I I realize it's sort of unforced errors to use a, ten, a tennis term. I think it, we're mature enough as a church and confident enough in our doctrine that this book helps us look inward and and look and say what we can do. I think sometimes it's easy to look outward and and blame anybody leaving or anybody becoming less faithful on the last days or Satan or the elect being deceived. And I don't want to dismiss that, but I think one of this, the things you're accomplishing with this book is to be able to say, let's look inward and see what we can do better and eliminate unforced errors. I know as a priesthood leader, I'm sure I committed a lot of unforced errors, to use a tennis term, where it you know, I should have known better if I'd had better tools. And my unforced error just led to somebody having a harder road within our church. Yeah. I I don't think people like Mike should ever feel like they're alone. Um, I don't think, um, you know, he found himself in this, this faith crisis and didn't feel like he could even share it with anyone who was close to him. Um, so much was at risk to him. Um you know, his temple marriage, his standing in the community, his friends at church. Um, you know, there was a lot at risk to him. And and yet um, our charge at the waters of, of Mormon, uh, when Alma baptized his followers, was to comfort those that stand in need and comfort and mourn with those that mourn. And, and that's where Mike was. And I'm not saying that he was failed by his leaders. Uh, but I think we as a church culture and local leaders and friends and family, as we better understand these issues, we can find um, ways that Mike doesn't have to walk alone through this. Talk more about, I love this, things that we tried to develop, trust, belonging, and meaning. I don't know if you want to talk about meaning, but I'd also like to talk about what you can do as a local leader to create a culture where you know you can belong 
I think of Elder Uchtdorf's talk where there's no sign at the entrance of our door that says your testimony needs to be this, this high to enter. So I'll talk more about sort of that, Dave. Yeah, the last part of the book is really focused. Uh, there's two chapters. One is how we individually focus and how we focus collectively in our wards. And um, I specifically chose the word minister because it it does evoke this deep um, relationship with an individual that understands their needs. Um, I think we really do that well in some settings. If there's, a, for example, a newborn baby in a ward, um, we know how to minister to that family that is adjusting to, you know, lack of sleep and, and um, you know, the physical recovery that comes from a birth. Meals are sent in, people help, take older children, you know, to allow that to happen. We, we kind of understand what it's like to have a new child born. Um, I think we also understand in cases sometimes of tragedy, a cancer diagnosis, uh, pr premature death. I think it's harder for us to understand uh, issues of faith. And because of that, we, our lack of understanding, we don't know what to do. Um, many of the people I talked to said this is the first time anyone has asked me about why I no longer attend. Um, so I think ministering really starts with truly listening. Um, it's not a skill I don't think that is natural for us. I think it's a skill that we have to develop. Um, I think sometimes when I, as a church leader, uh, you know, I think of the time I was a bishop looking across the desk at someone. Someone was telling me something that was difficult. Maybe it was an issue of faith or something else my mind would often be spinning around what should I say that will help them as opposed to my mind spinning around what can I say that will help me more understand what they're really feeling. Wow. So, wow. And if it's the case of sin or a lack of faith, often I would be thinking about, well, what scripture can I tell them that gets them back in line? you know, that tells them what they're doing wrong so that they won't have this problem as opposed to just truly being present with them. I think one of the words I use, um, I, I don't know who said this, but I quote it, says that it means to, to deep listen, to get into exactly what they're feeling um, and, and to immerse ourselves with them so that we understand that. Now, we can't do that for everyone. But it's something that we would do for a child. It's something that we would do for a close friend. And as we listen to them without trying to formulate a response, without trying to make it about ourselves, saying things like, well, I've been there. I know how you feel. You, you don't know how they feel, you know, because you haven't spent the time with them to know that. And it's not whether you understand them academically. It's having them be able to express what they're truly feeling. Usually doesn't happen in a single setting. It takes time. It takes a level of trust. It allows them to be vulnerable and know that you're going to still accept them, even if they don't believe in Joseph Smith anymore. You know, you're still going to love them. You know, even if they have problems with uh, sexual orientation or not problems, even if they're telling you things about their sexual orientation that um, are, are new to you. 
um, you're going to listen to them and you're going to understand what that means to them instead of worrying about what it means to you. It's really powerful. Talk about, do we have a lot of training on listening? As you look, look back in conference talks, is this something we've talked a lot about in our faith, or is this something where we really have maybe work to do? I think we have work to do on it. And, um, you know, I went through 20 years of um, general conference talks um, on many of these ministerial principles, and there's very limited information on how to, how to listen. Um, there's a lot of information for missionaries on how to proclaim the gospel and call people to repentance. But this deep listening that I'm referring to here um, is something that we do need to talk about in the church. I would love to have a ward council talk about this and figure out how you could address this in a ward and how you could have a, a sacrament meeting talk on it or um, how you could incorporate it into the lessons that are going on that month how you could take a, a general conference talk and use listening as uh, an element that uh, could be talked about in context of that general conference talk. I'd like us to figure out how to practice it. it. It's a skill. It's no different than any other skill that we develop. It's something that takes time um, and practice. And we're going to make mistakes at it, and we're going to say wrong things. And in my book, I give some examples of things that we can say um, and, and questions that we can ask that show that we're ready to listen, that we want to listen and understand. Um, and remember, these members in a faith crisis, they're isolated. They're uncomfortable disclosing their level of belief. So they need these cues to be able to feel like you're really going to try and understand them and, and, and that it's worth it for them to disclose um, the things that are really personal to them and very threatening to them. Um, of the people, I want to talk about listening, of the people in a faith crisis, do you get the feeling most want to find a way to stay or most want to find a way to leave? Well, I ask them that. So thanks for asking that. I get to share more data. Good. So um, I asked them question. One question is, I want to belong to the church community if I can be who I am. And overwhelmingly, these members in a faith crisis want to remain. Now, the question could be worded a little differently to get to the specific issue you're referring to, but these aren't people who want to leave. These are people that can't find a way to stay often. Some want to leave, but these are many of them want to stay, but feel like they can't because they don't belong, because they're misunderstood, because they can't trust their church leaders with their level of belief. One of the other questions that I ask is, um, uh, I can be authentic with my ward about the major issues in my life. 1% of faith, faith crisis members strongly agreed with that, and 8% agreed, which means 91% disagreed about their ability to be authentic about the concerns in their life. Where should they be authentic then? You know, where can they go if it's not a, our ward? You know, if, if it's not people that have covenanted together to support each other, um, um, you know, and, and so some of them say, well, I can't stay because I, 
this this just doesn't work for me, or they find other avenues to remain connected to people. Um, I stepped in your space a little bit one day on Twitter and tweeted out, if you're an active Latter-day Saint and in a faith crisis, is your hope to find a way to stay or to find a way to leave? And 335 answered that poll, and 88% said, find a way to stay. Well, I only I got eighty nine percent. So, so we kind of got the same number there, we didn't got we? Got the same number, and I said, if you're active Latter Day Saint and in a faith crisis, have you told your bishop? And I had six hundred and six respond to that. It's just interesting that six hundred and six actually said, I'm active Latter Day Saint and in a faith crisis, and only fourteen percent had told their bishop. Well, let, let's see what I got for that question. And. Um, um, I trust my local leaders to guide me through my faith crisis. That's the best I can get there. Yeah. Zero percent strongly agreed. One percent agreed. So um, I just think we've got to create a culture where if I'm in a faith crisis, we can open up. And, I, you know, I've been up front in my podcasts and in my social media that I went through what I would call a mini faith crisis. I still hold very traditional beliefs, active LDS um, but some of the things you talked about at the beginning were the origin of my faith crisis, the policy statement that came out while I was a YSA bishop and some difficult experiences during that calling. And I think in my situation, I knew I wasn't sinning. <laughs> I wasn't perfect, but I knew the narrative that I'd heard didn't apply to me because I was sort of giving everything for the cause and seeing really good results, but, but didn't know who to talk to about my uncomfortableness with the policy statements and some of the things that I was experiencing firsthand in that assignment. So I've walked that road a little bit, and it's been, it was to describe some of the things you shared, some of the darkest emotional chapters of my life as I was on my 30-minute drive every day to my YSA assignment and and feeling, you know, the the goodness of that calling and sustaining of that calling, but also the emotional turmoil of not knowing how to navigate some of the things that I was personally navigating and who to turn to. Yeah, I think that's a common um, element, whether it's a, a big one or a little one or something in between. Um, where do we go to address the challenging concerns that some people encounter at some point in their lives? And I would hope that um, we can find ways of understanding what those concerns are so that they can be addressed in the faithful places of the church. So in the case of Mike, when he came across um, aspects of church history that he was unfamiliar with that are not discussed at church, he went to the internet and learned about it. There's good resources and bad resources, but, but generally our church history is fairly well known on the internet. And so he learned that what he was hearing for the first time was, in fact, um, accurate information. And, and that's one piece of information. But the second harder question is, now what do I do with that? So if something happened in church history that is challenging, what, how do I think about that? Can I still have a testimony, even though there might have been a mistake or a problem or something I didn't know about? And where does he explore that? How does he think that through? That's hard work for faith. Um, and, and we ought to have settings in which we can do that. It may not be a gospel doctrine class. Um, 
It may be more one-on-one -on -one with people who've had experience in this, but, but we ought to make sure that there are resources available. Um, we can't pick them out of the congregation. Remember that from the outside, people having a faith crisis, Mike and others that I mentioned, they're completely believing in appearance. You know, they, they, they're doing their callings. They're going to the temple. Um, they're, but, you know, they're like ducks on the water where their legs are paddling in a way that we never see just to kind of stay afloat. So we have to kind of comprehend this problem in a different way so that we can uh, provide the support and the faithfulness to people who have faith crises. Are you seeing... I at one point thought this ought to be part of Sunday school somehow, and I think I don't believe that anymore because I think the majority of members of the church don't want to maybe talk about these complicated things, and they want, and I don't want to be negative to that group. They're just wired to have a wonderful experience and talk about their the experiences, and they don't really want to talk about the complicated issues, current issues, historical issues, and they, and they may not really want to hear voices that do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've wondered if if you go on that assumption, and I'm not sure that's a correct assumption, and I'm a local leader, a stake leader, are you seeing other avenues created like a Thursday night, um, stake-wide, if you want to come, we're going to teach the essays. We're going to go through every essay on a Thursday night. We're going to call an instructor. We're going to teach the essays. You can come if you want to, or just other ways to create settings. I like your word you just suggested, settings where members like Mike um, can attend and share how they feel. Yeah, I you know I think these are complicated, and I don't claim to have all the answers on it. Um, what I would like is I would like the, the ward councils and the state councils to wrestle with that question. That's a great answer. And um, if they are informed with regards to what the true issues are and realize that it's not because of some secret sin or because someone's lazy, but that they truly understand that there might be concerns about the church's position on this topic or this aspect of church history, then those local leaders, they, they can be inspired as to how to address that. They can create a setting that um, might be appropriate um, they can provide training and mentorship to the teachers and leaders that are involved in trying their best efforts. They can get feedback on what works. Um, they can talk to people who've been in a faith crisis on what could be helpful to them. And through that kind of, uh, you know, searching, studying it out um, in their minds and in their hearts, they can be led to answers that can work for them in their location. Um, I'm not completely punting on the issue. I think there are specific things that we can do. For example, we need to teach our youth um, a, a, a church history that doesn't, disc, doesn't uh, omit um, the hard issues. You know, it, it, if we're doing that and they're in front of an investigator when they're 18 years old on a mission and they say something and the investigator corrects them by showing them the Google answer, you know, then we put that missionary in a really bad place. And if they find that out after they've been married in the temple for five years, we put them in a really bad place. So we, we need to understand these issues well enough that we can teach them to our youth 
in our families and in our church classes in such a way that they are prepared to handle them um, and that they're familiar with them. Um, they shouldn't hear the word seerstone from an investigator. They should know that um, that Joseph Smith used seerstones to translate the Book of Mormon. Um, you can go on and on on this particular topic. So there's specific things that we can do, and I explore some of those in the book. But I think the most important issue is if local leaders understand, they can ask the right questions of the right people, including um, seeking inspiration from God to be able to find um, uh, approaches to address it. And one of the best ways is to ask people who are in a faith crisis. That, to me, was um, was um, very meaningful and in some ways changed um, a lot of perceptions that I had about faith. Um, as I talked to people in a faith crisis, I learned a lot. Um, and I uh, would ask completely different questions today than I would have two years ago when I started doing my research. Talk about helping people feel like they belong if they're asked to share their experience um, to local leaders or in a situation like, you know, that that helps me belong. If my experience is valued and people are wanting to understand what I'm going through in a way to help other people, that's a pretty cool ministering concept. I don't think that's a manipulative way, but it's a way that... And I think we can do that. We certainly could have a sacrament meeting talk on that, couldn't we? we? We certainly could have a sacrament meeting talk on what it means to truly welcome people um, and create a culture of inclusivity um, uh, in, in our, our ward. Um, it could be addressed in multiple ways with different people, some who have felt like they've been on the margins, some who have authoritative roles, that could say this is something we really need to do in our ward. And you could explore that in many dimensions. You can tie that completely back to the ministry of Christ. Think of who Christ ministered. He ministered to people on the fringes. You know, think about someone who has leprosy. You know, they were ritualistically unclean and because of a medical condition could not participate in temple rituals. And yet Christ reached to, out to them, taught us to find ways to pull them and other people metaphorically like them into our, our community. Think of the woman with an issue of blood. She couldn't participate just because of a medical condition. Think of the poor that couldn't participate because they couldn't afford the offerings. And, and yet Christ um, dealt with all of those issues. So there's wonderful Christ-centered talks that can be created and, and can create a culture where everyone knows that we as part of dis our discipleship and coming unto Christ means that we reach out to people on the margins. And that includes the people um, that struggle to know whether they can stay in the church because of faith. Those efforts may not pull those people back in. That, that's not uh, any sort of agenda-based ministering um, it, uh, usually is ineffective. People in a faith crisis are usually not looking for advice and for us to tell them what they're doing wrong or to tell them they need to get back in line in some ways. They're usually looking for people um, that 
can sympathize, empathize, validate that their pain is real. And through that process, know that they have a trusted, confident friend, family member um, that can help them. I think probably as you went through your circumstance, you would have loved to have had that kind of setting and relationship. I think you helped me at times. I think I felt safe opening up to you, but you're right. I love what you just taught there that, and this is why I love the book is because it gives data um, and implications. But then I love where you said, and this is the structure of our church, that a stake and a ward um, has keys and responsibility for the ministering work, the work in that geography. And we don't necessarily need to turn to church headquarters for every answer. Um, it is a church where um, leaders have local keys, and I think, and we do have the power of counsel. So I love where you're saying, instead of me giving you the answer, you know, read the book, learn the data, understand the implications, and then as a ward counsel or a stake counsel, um, take this to the Lord and talk about it. Perhaps a local leader would give chapters of this book to read uh, for a stake counsel or ask people to listen to this podcast and as preparatory to having this discussion, I think then then um, we're learning and growing together. I'm also remembering our own elders quorum, Steve, who's really good at this. And he talked about um, a member in our ward who's been inactive for as long as I've been in our ward, 20 years. And I knew he's one of the ones you talked about. He was a faithful member of the church, raised his family in the church. And I never asked this. I, and Steve later told me, he said, finally, I just went out to lunch. And I asked this good brother why he doesn't attend. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I've lived in this ward for 20 plus years, and no one's asked me that question. And we all assumed why this good brother didn't attend. And I then I thought of another brother I atten- we, in our ward who once served in leadership. And about five years ago, I was his home teacher, and he let me in, and we said a prayer, and we kind of chit-chatted about safe subjects, but I never, I didn't have the skills um, to ask him why he didn't participate. And I knew he would be comfortable with me if he trusted me to share that with me. And how am I not going to minister to him and meet his needs and understand where he is if I don't take the time to listen and understand where he is? So just some thoughts to um, validate the things you're sharing with us. I love the principle of listening. I have never been to a training meeting, Dave, to teach me how to listen. Uh, nor I. Um, and once on Twitter, I thinking about this one day, I thought we should rename, this is before it got renamed, we should rename home teaching, home listening, because I recognize that I think I could do more good for the people that I home taught by just listening to them than coming with my checkbook, checkbook lesson and, and do my thing and and never really ask how they're doing and never really take the time to understand the family situation. And and that's why I think ministering, but maybe ministering starts with listening. So just continue to share thoughts with us. I, um, so I kind of wonder what makes it hard for us to do that. To listen? Yeah, to, to listen and kind of accept people with where they are, um, you know, to to validate them in their feelings. And what I mean by that is to accept that their feelings are real to them, they're important to them, they're concerning to them. And and I think sometimes we um, feel that ministering or 
relationship building should be agenda-based and that, that our efforts really should be to accomplish some change that helps someone in our view get closer to Christ. And so um, we sometimes can call it calling people to repentance. We sometimes can talk about it as testifying as to the right way. We sometimes can say that it's giving advice and direction or counsel. Um, as I've studied it, these are usually very ineffective ways to help. Um, if advice is unsolicited, it often um, receives a backlash of receptivity, meaning it does more harm than good. And so if our relationship is always based on, um, if I say this, they'll come back, or if I say this, they'll have faith, or if I can get them to do this, it will have faith. And um, there may be a time and a place where there's the relationship depth that allows there to be trust where you can have these conversations and where there can be suggestions or offering, but it's almost always when it's asked for, as opposed to when we think we have some perceived um, direction. So um, um, it always starts with understanding, and, and that's where ministering uh, begins. Um, it may take us to a place where we have insights that are helpful. Um, but if we start off with that um, perspective, we'll rarely get them, um, the, the, it'll rarely be well-received. It'll, it'll rarely be effective. It will almost never create a, a closer relationship. I've really agree with that. And one day in, in the scripture, I changed warn my neighbor to love my neighbor because I just felt if I had a non-agenda relationship with my neighbor, um, that that would have helped me in the long run to create more good in both of our lives and that they would open up in a more thoughtful way. And perhaps then it would give me insights and in how our gospel could help them. But I still felt like that would only come after they knew I truly loved them and had sort of a non-agenda relationship with them because I think they can see through that. And I had to be willing to say, what can I learn from my neighbor? And what could they teach me, even people that aren't members of my faith, on how to come unto Christ and be a better person? So it takes a bit of humility to try to do that. Um, I, one of the things we wrote down either before the podcast or during the podcast, I wrote down is I give you permission not to believe everything. Um, is it okay for members of our church not to believe everything? If I, if there's parts of our church, I just, I mean, is it okay to just create safe spaces for people don't have to check a box on every single thing? Now there's temple recommend questions that are probably a different category, but if I'm unsettled about polygamy or I'm unsettled about race, um, how do we manage that as in a pastoral approach? Do we try to get everybody to sort of agree the same or do we create spaces where people can honestly feel differently and we just honor those differences? Well, I, I go back um, to um, kind of the, the missionary um, experiences I've had and then preach my gospel you know, our purpose as missionaries is to help people come into Christ. And um, 
I think we reflect in all of the missionary work that we do that uh, people are different. Uh, they have different backgrounds, culture, experiences, um, needs, wants, desires, um, challenges, weaknesses, genetics, race, gender, sexual orientation. There, there's an infinite number of differences that exist, which means that to some extent, the coming unto Christ really is an individual process. And I think we have to be comfortable with that individualness, which means that um, if I, at a particular stage in my faith journey, why I want to feel closer to God, I want to have spiritual meaning and direction in my life, if I'm at a stage where I don't believe something, I think we want to support that individual. I think we want to help them on their individual journey. And um, having them believe a particular way may have been helpful for us, but may not be helpful for that individual as they work forward in their own individual journey and, and spiritual growth. I think we do want to encourage people um, that, that they can feel connected to God. I think there are some things important for us to, 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 to say um, uh, can be something that people can experience in their lives. But I, I don't think we have to have a hundred of those. Uh, I don't think we have to agree with every policy. I don't think we have to um, uh, not unsee um, something that is troubling to you. But um, I think we can create enough inclusion and welcoming that allows people with diversity of belief, but commonality of purpose to continue to uh, be welcome, participate as equal people. Honestly, we're all somewhere in this. None of us knows everything. None of our faith is complete and certain. We're all works in progress. And each of us chooses to manage that in a different way. I do, you do. And, and, and I'm glad we fought for that. I'm glad we have that opportunity. We fought for that. I think it's okay to let other people have that too. Are there church talks or church quotes? Because I'm, if I'm a local leader and want to give and want to share what you just shared in a conference talk or a word talk, are there church talks or church quotes that's, that are helpful? Yeah, I uh, compiled a list of resources. They're, they're in the book, um, and they're also on my website, bridgeslds.com. And there's a specific resource tab that's there. And one of those tabs is um, uh, a set of uh, general authority remarks that are helpful for leaders to understand faith. We really actually probably have more training on this than we believe. And you quoted um, Elder Uchtdorf, who said, there, your faith doesn't have to be this high. Um, I think of Elder Holland talking about songs sung and unsung. And, um, you know, I'm in the choir. And I'll tell you, my voice is, is willing, but not always able. Um, and so we have those kinds of talks. And, and that resource guide has probably 20 or 30 or maybe even 50 now of different uh, ways in which leaders can gain insights. There's another tab for members. Uh, there's another tab of other helpful resources that are outside of 
authoritative uh, religious leaders. Um, so, um, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a resource. Um, what are some of my favorites, though, from that? Um, I guess they're kind of the ministerial ones. Um, you know, Elder Ballard has had one. Uh, when he was, um, I think, speaking at BYU, would this be November of 2017, yes. if I recall? Yeah. And, you know, someone asked him, what what should we do if one of our friends or yeah. family members leaves the church? And he just says, just love them. And, you know, don't preach to them. Don't preach to them. They already know the doctrine. They <laughs> yeah, you know this quote better than me. I've got it in the book, but you, but you can recite it off your, your the top of your head. And, and, and that's a great quote. And you know, let's sear that on our hearts because we've had training um, on that. Um, so there's those kinds of remarks that are out there. Um, and then there's other great people that have talked about this that are well experienced with issues of faith, and we can learn from them too. That's one of the things I loved about your book is it has so much of General Authority quotes and framework to provide um, direction on this that's very, very helpful. Um, I'm thinking about our own son who came home from seminary. He just left on a mission, and and so this is recent. He came home and told me about Joseph Smith's polygamy, and I just thought the difference between our oldest daughter, who was not taught that in seminary, and the change. Yeah. And I like that, to your point, a missionary going out, if he's going to talk about you know, he's going to know about Joseph Smith's polygamy before he teaches that investigator in Searstones. I listened, just shifting gears, I listened to an interview by Elder Snow, the church historian who's been giving, I understand, going to be given emeritus status in the October 2019 conference, and he just talked about the book Saints. And I've wondered about the role of saints in a staker ward or family. He said in this interview, he gave this book to every which he helped you know, direct, um, he gave this book to all of his grandchildren. And I thought, what a smart thing for um, young people to be reading the book Saints and hear about Joseph Smith's polygamy, for example, and Searstones. Any thoughts on the book Saints and just where the church is going on trying to develop better understanding of our history? I think the church has done great strides on that. Uh, it started with the gospel topics. Yes. Um, I think they released one or two, and there's probably 13 or 14 now. Uh, I think of saints. I think of the Joseph Smith papers. I think of uh, uh, President Ballard's remarks to seminary and institute teachers in February of 2016, where he said to these instructors, know them like the back of your hand so that you can teach them. I, I think we need to follow that, that counsel. Do you think that applies to parents and local leaders? Well, you know— <laughs> Is my responsibility as a parent delegated to institute and seminary teachers? I better know those things, right? My kids are all millennials, so they're out of the house. But I look back and I would have liked to have had those materials. I would have wanted to teach them as a parent. I would have wanted to understand them first. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't want them to have a surprise some point in their life. It's our history. You know, it's there's nothing unsavory about it. It's just our history. If we can talk about it, um, you know, there's things that we can learn from it. We can learn that, you know, um, our early church leaders were people. Um, they, they came from a background and, um, 
you know, that gives us a human dimension to their leadership that sometimes we lose when we only talk about them in such glowing supernatural ways that uh, we we can no longer even relate to them. So um, I, I think there's a dimension of faith that actually builds by by um, understanding our real roots. So yeah, saints is is great, and there's more volumes on the way. And they give voice to women, where you know, in many of our short um, uh, historical narratives, the women are invisible, and uh, it, it gives some voice to them. So so these are good materials. I'm going to read something here, but I wonder if you can pull up that message that because one of the questions I asked Dave before he we went on live is you have you been getting uh, messages since the book's been released um, by members of our faith, and I'm going to have him read that. He's going to have to go to his phone and find that. But one of the questions back to the few things I've done on Twitter in this space is I asked a question for those of you that hold a temple recommend. Now, that's a pretty faithful group. Please indicate your testimony of the church. And 1,100 responded and 41% said, I know it's true. 33% said, I believe it's true. 15% said, I hope it's true. And 11% said, not true. Not sure it's true. And I think one of the things that I came from that is I wanted to, nor- I think we need to normalize different testimony types. Because oh. I think behind that, hope it's true, believe it's true, maybe somebody doing the very best they can to come into Christ, but they feel back to your middle point, they don't belong because they can't bear that kind of testimony. So over time and decades of being in fast meeting and hearing that, and in our ward, we had a member of our bishopric actually say, I don't know it's true, but I believe it's true. And the line of people coming up to him after the meeting, and I thought, you know, he's going to have a lot of people that are going to open up to him as a safe person. So I think part of creating safety is just being honest as leaders at times. And I think Elder Snow in a couple of the interviews I've heard him do recently has been pretty honest with it, being uncomfortable about the policy statements, for example. And I think being honest and authentic creates a way that then you're approachable as a leader. Our own stake president here in my stake, um, President Sturt, has been excellent at that. And it's talked about some of these topics. So now I'm going to hand it back to you, Dave. Well, um, this is someone I don't know. It was an unsolicited um, uh, message I got on Facebook. But it says, I have heard your interviews on your book and I got it just last night and I took a half day of vacation to read it. One of the most rewarding half days of vacation. You get it. Thanks so much for your effort in trying to understand a faith crisis. I feel like you are the closest to understanding it short of going through one. I wish every bishopric, stake presidency, ward and stake release society, young men, young women, presidencies would read it. Um, so that's pretty tender for me. I, um, I, um, I you know, really, it's really tender for me too, because I think that brother or sister that sent you that message felt heard because yeah. of the book. And it comes back to listen, you didn't have a conversation with him, but you provided a, a ministering principle that he, his story felt heard by an LDS member, um, and I can just sense the emotion in his voice and that message to you that he felt heard and how healing that is for him. Yeah, I'm, I'm humbled to get that response back. Um, one of the things I really tried to do with the book, 
is to make sure that I could accurately represent um, the feelings and the experience of someone going through a faith crisis. Uh, I, I, I wanted to give them voice, uh, not to unsettle people, but to help us understand them. Um, I, I write at the beginning that this book is written primarily for us as believing members to help us understand those that are struggling with their faith or have left entirely. Uh, but I, I want um, those that read it that do struggle to have hope that we are trying to understand them. And that's a principal motivator. So when I, when I hear that, um, uh, at least for him, I got it right. Any other thoughts you'd like to share about the book, Dave? No, I, um, I hope it's meaningful for readers. I think it can be. Um, and uh, I appreciate others who've kind of gone before in this space, uh, people like you, Richard, that uh, give voice to people that sometimes don't get heard. Uh, to allow people, you know, the whole name of the, your platform, um, listen, learn, and love. It's it's all about um, uh, truly ministering. So I'm grateful for that. So thanks for having me on your podcast. Thanks, Dave Osler, my brother and friend, for being on the podcast. Dave's book is at Amazon number one under the category of Mormonism. And I'm grateful for the momentum the book has. Encourage people to go buy it at Desert Book, Coford Books, Amazon. And I think it's a wonderful, groundbreaking book to help us understand how to be the body of Christ that I think Christ wants us to be in our church. And I've always felt there shouldn't be a belief or behavior hurdle to feel like someone belongs, to use your middle word. And I think the gate's wide at the congregation level. I've always felt the gate narrows at the temple where there is a belief and behavior hurdle. Um, you shared a story. I don't know if I'm going to come back to you and have this story of somebody who came out at, at not as LGBTQ, but came out in elders quorum. Um, will you share that story? And then we'll just close with that story. Yeah, this is a story I didn't collect as part of the book, but uh, I was on another podcast. And after the podcast, uh, uh, the interviewer said, I, I want to tell you a story. And he had a member of his ward that he knew quite well. And um, this member um, didn't hold um, a high level of traditional belief in the church. And he was struggling to know how to express that to in his ward. He felt a need to do it uh, so that he could be understood. So he went to the bishop and and said, you know, I, 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 I want to be able to disclose this in some way. And the bishop said, well, why don't you do that in elders quorum? That's probably a pretty good place to do it. And so at the beginning of the meeting, um, this person I had been talking to was his friend and had arranged it with the elders quorum president for him to take him a minute before the lesson started. So he, he stood up and basically says, you know, I don't believe anymore, um, but I like coming to church and, you know, it works because of my family. And, you know, I want to be here for a lot of reasons. And he sat down and everyone was quiet. And uh, so the friend um, knew it was kind of an awkward uh, silence. And so he stood up and kind of in a joking way and, and said, so what are we going to do? I'll now shun him. And it was just a way. <laughs> I'll that, now shun him. <laughs> you know, it's like a motion on the table. All those that want to shun this non-believing person who wants to affiliate with us. <laughs> this non-believing person who yeah. wants to affiliate with us. And so, um, you know, it, it broke the ice. Everyone knew what they needed to do at that point. No one knew how to do it before, 
But this good brother who was a good friend and knew what his friend had just expressed, being very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Um, created a, a, a way in which the congregation, you know, the, the elders in that room could embrace him. So it's a great story. Um, and, uh, you know, I was really happy to, 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 to hear that story kind of unsolicited on this topic. Yeah, and I think would we want a brother like that to stay or to leave? Um, I think we'd want him to stay, and he wants to stay. So back to your number one, he wants the, these three things, trust, belonging, and meaning. Now, I assume he's going to be pretty careful with what he shares. He's probably in a state, he's not asking to sort of draw people his direction. He just wants to feel belonging. Yeah. Um, and I assume he's going to be one of the guys on the elder service committee that's going to go out and serve. I assume he finds great meaning in the service and the community of the church. And if he doesn't hold traditional beliefs, he finds great meaning there and companionship. And And I thought that was a pretty interesting story. So we'll end with that story and thank our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.